Sometimes unexpected guests come into our lives and they leave us with anxiety, right? You're not expecting them. They kind of give you something going on and, and it just doesn't, it doesn't feel good when they leave. Uh, I remember this happening in my life when I was in junior high. Uh, I had a friend who lived down the street. His name was Ben. Uh, and Ben had a girlfriend from the next town over and uh, he decided he was going to go on a date with her. And the only way that she was allowed to go on a date with him was if she brought a friend along. And so she had a, a another friend that was a girl, and Ben needed somebody to come along. And guess who he got to go with him? <laughs> Me, yeah. So I'm, I'm this, yeah. And so I go there, and, and if you don't remember junior high, it was one of those awkward moments for most of us guys, right? We're just now recognizing that there's another gender to the species, and we're not sure how we feel about them. All right, and that was me in a nutshell, okay? I come, I go to this movie theater with Ben. Uh, we sit down and watch this movie. I'm sitting next to this girl that I don't even remember her name, all right, to be honest. I don't even remember what the movie was. All I remember is I did not necessarily know what I felt about her sitting next to me. All right, I don't know that I said uh, more than five words the entire time. And so once it was over, I got back home, and I was relieved, all right? Two months pass. I get to the end of summer, and we get this knock on the door, and I go to answer it, and there is Ben with his girlfriend and his girlfriend's friend, and in that moment, I don't know what is going on. Like, I, I am sweating, like, profusely, okay, and so I come out before my parents figure out who's there, and I talk to them, and in about five minutes, I convince them to leave so that I don't have to be around this girl again, okay? I, I, I was just one of those moments where sometimes an unexpected guest leaves us in anxiety. We're looking at the story of Christmas, and we're looking at these people who just appear onto the scene. They show up, and when they show up, they change how the story goes. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bible, uh, I invite you to open it up and follow along with us. Uh, and in this story, there's a guy who receives some people unexpectedly, and it leaves him kind of like how I was feeling with that girl that came over to my house. All right, and so we're going to look at this story. Uh, it is the story of the Magi, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. All right, and I want to stop there because I think it's important for us to understand some things about what Matthew is trying to do in his gospel. Uh, Matthew in his gospel has a theme that plays throughout the entirety of the gospel. And the main theme of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus, after he gets baptized and, and starts to proclaim his message, the very first words that Jesus says that he starts preaching is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is permeates throughout Matthew's gospel to the point that an entire chapter, chapter 13, is designated towards the teachings of Jesus about this kingdom. And within the story of Jesus' birth, Matthew is still promoting this theme. He's introducing this theme of the kingdom, and every kingdom must have a king. And so, G so Matthew here is trying to tell us about who the true king is, and he introduces us to Herod. 
See, in Israel, for the most part, they knew who was supposed to be king. And the king was to come from the line and the house of David. And so for most Jews, the throne that was sitting in Jerusalem, it was empty, although there was someone there. It sat empty because the Messiah would come one day and he would fill that throne. And there have been guys who had tried. There have been sons of David who said, I will be that king. And they tried to take over the throne and met untimely demises. All right, so they were hoping, they were waiting for a long-expected king. And for the moment, an imposter sat on the throne. Herod got the throne through trickery. Right? The Israelites, they were semi-independent. Uh, they were about to be conquered by Rome. All right? Rome was just that much more powerful and, and Israel not. All right? And so uh, Herod is watching all of this take place, and he goes to Caesar Augustus, and he says, I will give you the land of Israel if you make me king. And for whatever reason, however he convinced uh, uh, Augustus to uh, not, yeah Augustus to do this like whatever happened he it worked out to where he becomes king of this land under the Roman Empire and the Jews didn't like that they they wanted to be independent any time anybody took over them they kind of fought against it so one you have this king that you don't like because he has kind of given away your country but two he's not a full Jew. See, Herod was a half-Jew, half-Edomite. And so he represented everything that the Jewish people despised. They expected purity. And for the king to not have that, it did not sit well with many people. And so they were waiting for the throne to be filled with the true king of Israel, the Messiah who would come and overthrow Herod, and overthrow Rome, and would sit on the throne of David forever. And the reason they longed for this is because of a prophecy that was given to David in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And in that prophecy, we're told that when the days are over, and when you go, God speaking to David, when your days are over, and you go to be with your offspring, I'll raise up for you an offspring to succeed you one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who built a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my, over my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. How long is it, this kingdom going to last? Forever. And yet we see that eventually the line of David is cut off when the Babylonians come in. And so this type of prophecy, there's different types of prophecies in the Old Testament, that this type is called mountaintop prophecy because the prophet is standing on a mountaintop and he's looking into the future and he sees what is near. All right, and he talks about that. And that's where we see here. The prophet Nathan is looking and he's telling David, that you're going to have a son who will build a house for God and his kingdom will extend on. And that son was Solomon. 
But then he's looking past that mountain to another peak that's beyond the way to another son of David who would rise up and build a new house of God and would establish a new kingdom that would last forever and ever. The Messiah. This king that all of Israel was waiting for. But as they waited, the imposter king sat on the throne. In our lives, at the center of who we are, there is a throne. And the throne is reserved for one person, the king of kings. But many times we put imposter kings there. Maybe in your life, the imposter king that you are serving is money. And so you work and you work and you work and everything you do revolves around trying to be more and more rich, trying to have more and more stuff. And it's not Jesus that sits on the throne. Maybe for you it's not money. Maybe it's your kids and you give up more things for your kids than you give up for Jesus. You spend more time and more money and more effort on them than you ever do for the kingdom of God. And the imposter king that's sitting on your throne are your kids. Maybe the imposter king that is on your throne is yourself. And you've put yourself there, and you'd rather others serve you than you serve them. Too many times in life, at the center of our hearts, on this throne reserved for Jesus, someone else is sitting there. Who is sitting on your throne? Herod receives them, is going to receive some unexpected guests into his house. Uh, The unexpected guests come at the end of verse 1 when we're told that magi from the east come to Jerusalem. And in verse 2, they come and they ask Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Uh, These magi, they were uh, a cast of political and religious advisors uh, in the Persian Empire. Uh, They served the Mede kings and then the Persians after them. And then they were told that they come because they've seen the sign of the king, the Messiah, this long-awaited king of the Jews. And the question is, is how did they know it? How did they recognize these signs? Well, I think there's two things happening here. First, there's a guy that was a part of their cast of people who lived a long time ago by the name of Daniel. And Daniel wrote a book, and in his, the second half of that book, he talks about the Messiah and the signs that would come to point to him, this king of the Jews. And so it's very well possible that the Magi are sitting there with Daniel, and they're looking at what Daniel is saying, and they're looking at the history of, of this land, Israel, and they're recognizing, hey, it's all matching up, and they come because the Messiah has come. We're told that they follow a star, and we don't really know what this is. The Magi were uh, astute at looking at the stars, and, and that was one of the things that they were known for. And so whatever it is, it is coinciding with what is happening in the book of Daniel, and they come to worship the king, and we're left with the question, why were they so aware while the religious leaders were not? 
how did they see the signs? But the people who probably knew the Old Testament left and right, how did they miss it? Here's what I think is happening. I think the religious leaders, they see the same signs, but they're so worried about their power that they choose to ignore them. I mean, think about this. If a new king comes and he overthrows the previous government, more than likely those who are in power now won't have power then. It happens in our government, right? All right, Democrats were in the White House, a Republican gets elected, and what happens to all of the cabinet members who were in charge of all these different things? They're gone. And new people come in power. And so if you're in the ancient world and there is a king, King Herod, and a new king that's not from Herod's line comes in and overthrows and takes over the kingdom, more than likely all the advisors and all the people of power in King Herod's kingdom, they're not going to have that power anymore. So I think these religious leaders, they saw the signs, but they weren't wanting a new king. They were so engrossed in their power that they weren't willing to bow down to the Messiah. Sometimes in our lives, we see the sign of the king and we choose to ignore it. We have (coughs) instances in our lives where we know that God is moving where God has taken us from right here to this other place, and we're amazed that we got to this place because we never dreamed or imagined it would be. And yet, despite these signs, despite these things working, we don't always put Jesus on that throne. And I think the reason why we don't is because we know if we place Jesus on that throne of our lives, our lives will radically change. And we want to have control. We want to decide where our money goes. We want to decide how we're going to act around certain people. We want to decide how things are going to be in our lives. And because we have an issue with power and control over my life, we don't let Jesus be king. And we keep the imposter king on the throne so that we can have a say in what is going on. King Herod is there. He hears this news, and it doesn't sit well with him. In verse 3, we're told that King Herod heard, heard this, and he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they replied, in Bethlehem in Judea. And they quote some Old Testament scripture. And in verse 7, we're told that Herod called the Magi secretly, And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Herod, in his lifetime, had bowed down to other more powerful people. He did this to gain the throne. He told Caesar Augustus, I will will bow down to you as long as you make me king. But if it impeded upon his control of his kingdom, Herod was not very willing to look past that of other people. 
His sons tried to overthrow him one time, and Herod killed off his sons. So people trying to overthrow him didn't sit well. And so the Messiah being announced as being born isn't going to sit well for him. And so he calls in the experts of the law, and they instantly know where the Messiah is to be born. The Magi don't. And the reason I think the Magi don't is, again, because they only have the book of Daniel. That's it. They don't have the rest of the Old Testament to, to kind of figure out where the, where the king would be born. And so they go to the most logical place, right? The capital, Jerusalem. But the imposter king is in Jerusalem, not the Messiah. So the religious leaders, they tell him it's, it's in Bethlehem that this child will be born. And Herod devises a way to get at the child. He tells the Magi, please go find them so I too can worship him. When in reality, Herod was going to kill him. What roadblocks do we put up keeping Jesus from the throne of our lives? Herod was willing to murder, and I'm not saying we're willing to murder Jesus, okay? But we are willing to put roadblocks up to keep him from control. Maybe for you it's a lack of spiritual disciplines. And you choose not to read your Bible, not because you know it's a good thing to do, but because you know that if you do, you will be convicted of what's going on in your life. You don't pray because you're afraid of what will happen. You don't give because you want your money and you don't want the money to go to someone else. What roadblocks do we put up so that we can have control and not the king? And while we don't want to necessarily murder like Herod did, we do try everything we can to keep the king from sitting on the throne in our life. Well, the Magi continue on to where Jesus is. In verse 9 through 11, we're told that after they had heard from King Herod, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And they came to the house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. God guides these men to the child, to the Messiah, to this long-awaited king. He is here. And as they come to him, they give him three gifts, all gifts fitting for a king. They give him gold. And in the Persian culture, whenever they took over another country, they kind of let that country kind of keep going how they were. They didn't impose a, a new governor or anything like that. The only thing they required of the new country were three things, loyalty to the laws of Persia, loyalty to the kings of Persia, and a tribute given every year. And that tribute was gold. And so as these Persian men, these magi, come before Jesus and they offer him this gold, they are doing it as a sign of where their allegiance belongs to. They are saying, you are our king. They give him frankincense, which was one of the main incense burned in the temple worship. 
Uh, it was used during the altar of incense period. It was used whenever a sacrifice was made to cover up the smell of burnt animals. And as they are giving this, they are giving it, not only proclaiming Jesus as king, but Jesus as priest. One day, Jesus, as the high priest, will come before God and he will present himself as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the world. And looking forward to that day, the Magi give him incense. The third gift is that of myrrh, and myrrh was used in a number of different ways uh, in that society. One of the main ways it was used for is for uh, medicinal purposes. In fact, uh, we still use myrrh in some of our medicines. And, and the primary way it's used in the life of Jesus comes at the end of his life. After he's died on the cross, they bring down the body of Jesus and they wrap it in myrrh and aloes and bandages. And the reason they did this was because of how funeral customs were in that day. They, if, you were, if you died, you would be taken to a tomb and you'd be laid on a slab Okay, and, and they would wait a year or so for the, the body to decay. So all that was left were the bones. And they would take the bones and put them into a box and put that box in a hole cut out in the tomb. And after you've been away for a year, after the tomb's been closed for a year and you open it up, it's not going to smell very good. And so myrrh was placed on the bodies to cover this smell of death. And what the Magi are doing as they are presenting this gift of gold, they are saying, you are our king. As they present the frankincense, you are the high priest. And as they present the myrrh, you are going to die for us. The Magi are coming to this long-awaited king, and they're recognizing that he is a better king than any of the world has seen. Jesus is the benevolent king. When compared to Herod, Jesus is a far better king. Herod was a wicked man who got his way through intrigue to be king. He killed many, many people. He ordered people to die when he died so the world would mourn his passing. And yet, Jesus died for the world. Herod was this guy that was all about himself. And he worried about promoting himself and no one else. And he didn't care who he crushed to get to that process. And yet Jesus stepped down from his throne to give us glory and us righteousness. Jesus stepped down from his throne so that one day we could stand before God and for him, Jesus to say, he is mine. Jesus is the benevolent king. And so we have a choice to make in our lives. Who is going to sit on that throne? And if you compare anything that is sitting there now to Jesus, Jesus beats it every time. Because Jesus is the benevolent king. And we may reject him. But he still wants what is good for us. And we may reject him, but he still came and died so that we can be forgiven. 
And while we still reject him, even after that, he still wants to give us his glory and his righteousness. If only we wouldn't reject him. He is the benevolent king. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Jesus and for him to come and to die the death that we deserved, to take our sins and our mistakes and to place them on the cross. Lord, we're grateful for these unexpected guests who show us who the true king is. Father, in our lives, help us not to keep the imposter king on our throne, but to give it to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Help us to remain focused on that. Help us not to dethrone Jesus, but to let him be king of our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen.